HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people who prepare our meat before it reaches our plates. We hear from whole animal butchers, the brains behind a meat vending machine, California cattle ranchers, and a master of charcuterie who isn't using meat at all like a smoked and grilled uh, center stock of the broccoli and then it gets uh, finished with some mustard barbecue sauce and sauerkraut. Ranching and farming being as difficult as it is you know it's just one thing after another and at some point you just give up. I had a wild idea that if I learned butchery maybe I could start to be kind of a link in the supply chain. Listen to Meet and 3 HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of Ju- the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Alvin Kylon, creator of Egg Slut. In today's episode, we'll talk to Alvin about what Filipino-American food means to him, his new book, Amboy and we'll hear Alvin's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We send our best to everyone coping with the pandemic, especially those in the hospitality industry, and extend much gratitude to all the essential workers keeping us going. We hope you'll join us for the presentation of the 2020 Julia Child Award to Danielle Nirenberg at the 6th Annual 
Smithsonian Food History Weekend, and Gala from Home, October 15 to 17, 2020. This year, the Gala and Food History Weekend will be virtual as well as free. Stay tuned for how you can register. And check out our interview with Danielle in episode 94. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We're returning to a familiar theme. Julia loved chefs. She loved meeting them, hanging out with them, learning from them, and sharing their talent with a wider audience. I think Julia was so obsessed with chefs because, while she had a huge amount of cooking skill and knowledge, she didn't really see herself as a wildly creative person. She found chefs' ability to invent, improvise in the kitchen, endlessly inspiring. She also understood that to be a great chef requires a lot of energy, dedication, precision, and one of the most important ingredients, heart. Such a rare combination, Julia couldn't help admire and want to promote its societal value to a world which only more recently has become fully appreciative. Someone who embodies these same characteristics is Chef Alvin Kylon. Perhaps best known as the founder of the now internationally known Egglet restaurant chain, which he started in a food truck serving the mean streets of Los Angeles, having paid his dues in fine dining kitchens, attending both college and professional cooking school, he built the Egglet brand from its first location in downtown Los Angeles's Grand Central Market. After a stint in New York, he's returned to LA, getting back to his roots through his latest venture, Amboy. Now arguably America's most high-profile champion of Filipino-American food, he's been featured in everything from Bon Appetit magazine to Bloomberg, and hosts First We Feast, The Burger Show on YouTube. Alvin joins us today to talk about his journey as a Filipino-American chef and his new cookbook slash memoir, Amboy, Recipes from the Filipino-American Dream, written with Alexander Cuerda. Welcome to the podcast, Alvin. Thanks for having me, Todd. So I want to start, like, even before COVID, it seems like the last five years for you have been quite a whirlwind. And so I was curious, like, coming through the last five years and dealing with COVID, how are things going now back in, in downtown L.A.? Um, it's different. <laughs> you know, I was, I was in New York for the last four and a half, no, three and a half years. And... Um, in the last three and a half years, I think Los Angeles has blown up in the food scene. And it's coming back, it's like completely different from what it was when we first started. Yeah, when you first started was probably like when downtown LA was sort of just becoming a new reinvented food thing. And I feel like you've returned to its, you know, transformation in a sense, is that what it feels like to you as well? Or does it also feel like COVID yeah. has totally upended that? Uh, it's it's completely different. I mean, when I moved to downtown in 2010, it was no one lived there and no one wanted to open restaurants there. Oh, hold on. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Um no one wanted to live in downtown, uh, and I got an apartment super cheap. <laughs> and uh, now the apartments are super expensive. There's lines wrapped around the door, uh, the block. Uh, even during COVID, like if you wanted to get some really good tacos, the taco shop uh, has a line 
out the door. It's it's crazy. And and do you think that kind of there's still to me a unique structure of doing business in downtown LA because it's you know it's not like New York, it's not even like downtown Chicago. And it's still a bit fragmented and fractured. But has that in in some weird way been an asset for COVID because businesses already had to be sort of nimble in how they had had to adapt? Uh, It's it's weird. It's a weird dynamic out here. Uh, You know, I think if if you're a brand or if you're a restaurant that's already super busy pre-COVID, I don't think you really felt the effects of in, in business but i think like the restaurants that were truly dependent in dying in they're struggling the most and and it seems like with amboy was the model you have now what you originally intended or or is it a bit of a pivot or it was always going to be a hybrid so you've just leaned on one side of the business well, we're very familiar with Chinatown, and I've been a part of this building for the last seven years. So we knew that even before COVID, our lunchtime uh, concept and menu would be completely different from our dinner uh, menu. So we knew we were going to do burgers during the day, uh, but we weren't going to rely on burger sales. We were going to rely on doing like a Filipino steakhouse at night. Uh, and that completely changed because now we're a butcher shop that sells steaks raw. And then we also sell hot burgers during the day. And we're in business with the sun up. So 11 to 7. And is that a kind of coping pivot? Or were you not far enough along in your process that it was just a, 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 a decision? Like, I guess I'm trying to get a sense of how you seem pretty optimistic and upbeat compared to many chefs and restaurateurs. Maybe that's just your nature, but like, how would you kind of, and maybe you're farther along, but how would you characterize it in terms of the adaptation? Well, you know, when we first opened, there was like a, like a curfew because there were protests going on. Um, and we realized that during the pandemic, evening dining was not the same. Like people, I think were felt safer coming out during the day and, you know, picking up food to go uh, during the day. So we felt more comfortable opening and during the day. (laughs) And and, um, honestly, like we didn't want to do takeout steaks cooked because we wanted it to like, be something special where you sat down. So we completely eliminated that out of the equation and uh, burgers and the way we do burgers can hold for like at least an hour. So it's a perfect takeout food. So we knew that if we were going to make hot food, we would have to stick to just doing hamburgers. And the fact that we do raw meat really help us during the pandemic because there's nothing like us in the neighborhood and the people who are moving to Chinatown are growing. So there's an outlet now where they can buy raw meat and simple provisions. 
So I, I just feel like you seem really positive, which is terrific. Do you think like just with your background that we're going to get more into that, like resilience is sort of built into how you operate. So you just, you deal with the here and now and you just keep going. Is that kind of how you've stayed in this positive frame of mind? Yeah. I think that's the only way I've ever lived. Maybe it's because I grew up in East LA and, uh, you know, we were always handed a bag of lemons and we always had to make lemonade. So, uh, yeah, I think that's just like my my mindset whenever I do anything. <laughs> no, that that's amazing. Well, let's go back in time for a sec because I did want to hear and and talk about because having, uh, you know, prepared for the podcast and looked at Amboy, I think your story is really fascinating to me, and I think will also be inspiring to a, a lot of people. And you've been very candid about your ups and downs. So let's go to like when author and former editor-in-chief of Gourmet, Ruth Reichel, who we've had on the podcast, like she basically, or you credit her with changing your life. What was that all about? Oh, she definitely put us on a whole nother platform. (laughs) Um, We were really invisible to food media for the first year and a half, I believe, that we were in business. Uh, You know, we just did the everyday struggle, showed up to a spot, tweeted, hoped people showed up. And then when Ruth came, she she just brought this energy that, I mean, everyone wanted to feel. And I mean, next thing you know, every food blogger, food writer at the time in Los Angeles knew we were alive and showed up. And so it really gave us a spotlight that we desperately needed at the time because we were severely underfunded and, you know, we were on the brink of just closing up shop. And uh, she definitely, she boosted our business. I mean, we went from easily accessible to, a 45 one hour line to get egg sandwiches. And yeah, just for context for people who might not know, this is when you started Egg Slut and the original venture was a a food truck that you kind of cobbled together, although you had already done fine dining chef work before that, right? Yeah, I mean, in 2007, I decided that I wanted to just work fine dining. (laughs) I I wanted to be like a chef's chef. Uh, The guy that you would call on to make sure that everything ran smoothly during service. And I did that for, you know, a good three years and I I lost my job. Uh, And I wanted to keep going and doing fine dining, but I realized that I was always being looked over um, and kitchens for other chefs. And so I was like, I needed to create my own ball game. I needed to create my own path uh, to becoming a chef. And what I did know how to do and I did well was uh, sandwiches. And I figured opening a food truck would kind of be a affordable way of showcasing my talent. 
and it paid off. But it was how long was it sort of touch and go? Was it until that Ruth Reichel moment, or did it did it actually go on I, I much think, longer than that? I think even with the write up, it was still pretty dangerous because you know we were getting busier, but then we still had a bunch of food to buy, so our food co- cost went up. And so, like, and and also, we had to hire more people. Um, it it was it was costly, and the the expenses on the truck started to accumulate. And if we didn't open our brick and mortar, it would have it, it probably still would have uh, ended poorly. <laughs> I guess that's the danger with overnight success and or slash fame is that you don't have time to prepare for it, so it's really easy to end up underwater. Exactly, but. I mean, her, but her words really turned us into a force and, uh, and, and really, uh, a household name in Los Angeles. Well, and, and now around the world. And now I know that you've moved beyond Egg Slud after you, you, you basically built the brand and the menu and, and the, the DNA of it. But what do you feel like looking back? Did you... What are the things you can really look to that you got out of that whole kind of amazing journey and trajectory? I learned how to build a brand. It was really a master a master class of, you know, running and operating a modern restaurant uh, that really utilized social media and um, and mar- and marketing. Uh, before it used to just be the food, right? If the food was delicious, people by word of mouth would just say, "Oh, these guys have amazing eggs or pasta or pizza or whatever." That was that was enough to stay alive. But I think Eggslut growing with the advent of you know Instagram and Twitter and stuff like that really taught me how to enter the future of food <laughs> yeah and i want to i wanted to take this moment also because you you kind of referenced it in how you ended up starting the egg slot food truck and your disappointments with where you were getting in fine dining so you you've been you know both candid about your experiences with racism and growing up in east la and then you've also been you know outspoken about the professional food world really being quite white dominated so i was just curious what your where your head's at now after the recent racial reckoning, whether it's from the Black Lives Matter and protests all the way to, you know, the shakeup of Bon Appetit in the LA Times. Like, what are you, are you feeling good? Are you feeling optimistic? Are you feeling it was? It's still yet to be seen. Yeah. (laughs) It's still yet to be seen. I think as a workforce, uh, people of color have definitely proven their point and, and, and are are really valuable and worth giving a shot. Uh, whether or not, you know, corporate leaders and people who invest in restaurants will give the opportunity to people of color. I, that's still, that's still uh, in, in the air. We'll see, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I, I'm optimistic though. I do believe that um, more opportunities will, will present itself for, for people of color in the restaurant industry, uh, especially now that there is an awareness um, that we have been treated unequally. And um, 
you know, I, I'm glad I'll, I'll get to live to see it. <laughs> and and do you think, I, I guess where I'm always wondering, you know, given your experience and your experience growing up as the son of immigrants who worked really hard and built their own businesses and careers. And I think a lot of particularly, and I lived in Los Angeles for a long time, a lot of people there work incredibly hard and are amazingly resourceful. And it's kind of like they can do things themselves as the path is cleared versus necessarily wanting to be endorsed by some corporate restaurant brand and, and shepherded. So do you, do you see that the necessity is more essential, for lack of a better phrase, white people not standing in people of color's way versus them funding and bringing them into like existing operations and chains? I, I think it's both. Um, like you're right. It, it's, it's, it's very easy to create your own path here in Los Angeles. Um, but that's just like a percentage of people who, who cook. I think a majority of line cooks and stuff like that really do look for stability in corporate restaurants, um, you know, for healthcare benefits, retirement, stuff like that. And so in that sector, I know that it's been very difficult, uh, especially with colleagues of mine who are also Filipino, um, to, to get opportunities to, uh, you know, climb the climb the ladder. No, actually, thank I, you for I, making. I don't know what the explanation is for it because I've never gotten that high in that in that world. But you know, speaking from my personal experience, it's like, ooh, like doing something like Aspen and Food and Wine, and my positioning in that show. It, it's kind of crazy how. You know, people of color are kind of on the outskirts of stuff. And, you know, celebrity chefs that are not people of color, mostly, you know, white, are the ones that are on stage, you know, given the opportunities to showcase. Uh, and, you know, I think nowadays that's going to change. And, I, again, I can't blame it on whether or not it's it's about race or if it's about money because i know that you know in the sake of like bon appetit and the way they ran their business in the last you know decade was really to to sell you know ad space or or whatever it it's it's, it's such a crazy thing to think about being a person of color and, and also just trying to be a leader in the food industry. Uh, when you hear and read stories about, you know, making decisions based on the fact that the majority of this world would rather see a white face cooking Filipino food on a magazine than a cruel Filipino person. Well, and I guess that's the assumption that's really being challenged. That was the prior justification, but I now... mean, I, I felt it firsthand. Um, you know, doing festivals and stuff like that, uh, like it, it's such a wild concept, and I never really put two and two together until all of this started happening. Um, but I, 
I, I just, it still shocks me uh, that, that there's actually like a monetary reason why, you know, we get looked over. Yeah, well, I guess my personal view would be that that's just been a justification that people are advocating for change or really saying, really, is that really it? Or is that just an assumption and excuse people have been using? But I loved also Yeah, that's why I like working. Sorry, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. (laughs) That's why I like working for First We Feast. Uh, Because First We Feast, you know, they don't see color um, and they really... They give opportunities to like myself um, and uh, Jesus who does tacos con todo because like we kind of switched it up. We we showed that like a Filipino guy can still garnish millions of views on a YouTube show and kind of just flip the whole idea on their head. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, what's more iconically for lack of a better term, white bread American than burgers. But, you know, here you are taking people on a, you know, national tour of, of burgerdom. Yeah, exactly. And and now selling them out of DTLA. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good moment. We're going to take a break and we'll be back to talk more to Chef Alvin Kylon about his new book, Amboy, Recipes from the Filipino American Dream. Stay with us. I'm Brian Kenny, a board member at HRN and Director of Collections and Archives for Hearst Western Properties. Hearst Ranch beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. I recently recorded an episode of HRN on Tour with the Division Manager for Hearst Ranch, Roland Camacho. We talked about what sets Hearst Ranch apart. I want to share with our listeners a meal that you and I had at the bunkhouse a couple months ago where you cooked up a couple flat iron steaks. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that was the best steak I've probably ever had. So kudos to you. The thing that I taste in grass-fed beef, I think it depends a lot on the grasses. You hit it right on the head. It has to do with the location of the grasses what grasses they are yeah and the age the maturity of the grass okay those are the three things that really that really hit it so it's by region the so it's terroir terroir exactly. terroir specific mm-hmm. so what i taste in Hearst ranch beef is what i smell when the wind comes up the canyons and i'm up off the pergola mm-hmm. that uh is herbaceous mm-hmm. there's a, it's not really sage i think it's the rye grass mm-hmm. it has a grassy scent like a zestiness that's what i taste in the meat and i taste it um particularly in the fat for 150 years the hearst family has raised cattle on 150,000 acres of rich grasslands on california's central coast grazing enhances a complex and balanced mosaic of native grasslands ensuring a sustainable food system as well as delicious beef Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Alvin Kailan about his new book, Amboy, Recipes from the Filipino-American Dream. So 
just to give props to the book, it's really full of mouthwatering recipes. The photographs are gorgeous. But I also kind of hesitate to call it a cookbook because it has so much about your life story and your personal perspective that it's also kind of like a memoir. And so I was just curious, what, were you in writing it and finishing it, did you hope readers took away from it a lot more about your Filipino-American son of immigrants experience than just, you know, that you make great food? I think initially we didn't start off uh, thinking it would become this style of memoir. But, you know, we, we signed a deal right before the 2016 election. Um, and then we started writing it, you know, as soon as President Trump took office. And so I started to, like, really have this weird energy, uh, try to combat, you know, the... I don't even know how to explain it, but, like, I, I feel like that the president used... Uh, people of color to like pin the the country against each other, and so I wanted to like talk about my story and talk about the American dream because every time I would start to write, and every time I had a conversation with Ali, the American dream seemed so far fetched in in that time, and I wanted to talk about how hard it was. To, to get to where I was at and how hard it is to continue, you know, that level of success, uh, being a person of color, specifically being Filipino American, uh, because I, I get it from, even from the Filipino community, it's not just, uh, you know, a white or brown thing or a white or black thing. It, I get it from both sides. And, um, I really wanted to, to, to write, you know, something impactful, something meaningful, and then have the delicious recipes um, kind of explain, you know, how I got through it. <laughs> um, but well, yeah, no, I... it's, it's a throwback. It's a throwback. I think old books that I used to read when I was falling in love with food had like a really crazy story. And so I wanted to throw it back. Well, I think it was very successful because I found it incredibly engaging and moving and just to fill people in. You take people from your childhood in East LA and Pico Rivera and you move, we go to the Philippines and to different aspects of your family and you're really, you know, candid and open about that. And I think a lot of Americans of all persuasions and colors can kind of relate to that because despite what the president likes to pretend, almost everyone has some kind of immigrant story and and background, mm -hmm. whether it was told to them by their parents that they watch struggle or their grandparents or even their great grandparents. And I think you captured that, you know, really well. And I think also what's interesting about what you're saying about the divisiveness is in my experience, like as a community, Filipinos are quite diverse and are not naturally like necessarily liberals, yet they're very often first generation or second generation immigrants to America and having the, the challenges that you talked about. So is that also something that's like been difficult within your own family to like kind of reconcile this anti-immigrant rhetoric with your, your own sort of experiences and beliefs? Yeah, absolutely. You know, my, my parents are very conservative Catholics. Uh, my mom actually works for 
the Catholic Church and the local um, Catholic Church, and uh, like in all shapes, politics, religion, just culture, we clash on a on a daily basis, um, and it's and then I think it it's it's really shaped me to think the way that I think because I get to see both sides of of the of the spectrum. Well, let let's kind of talk about that in this sort of uniter theme because I was just going to say I bet where you and your mom can agree is when you sit down over something you've cooked and then then there's kind of a meeting of the minds. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of the way uh I I calm her down when it comes to <laughs> So talking to politics, you know, I'll just be like, here, mom, you know, eat this like champurado, which is like a, a basically a chocolate rice porridge. And, you know, she'll she'll calm down and she'll talk to me a little bit more calm, uh, cool headed. <laughs> it, it, yeah, food is definitely the remedy uh, in my family uh, just to, to ease the tension of the world right now. No, and I think that that's the amazing part of your story is like the the best thing about America is all the different things immigrants have contributed to um, what is American food and what Americans are eating. And then that's constantly evolving. But I, I want to stick on your experience because I still I do think that it's un, under understood, especially if you're not from a place like L.A. or another community that has a really large Filipino American population. So I wanted to hear from you, like, what do you think are the top things that people should understand or misunderstand? And then connect those also to like the food that you think really defines Filipino American food in, in you know, the best way possible. I think first and foremost, um, even like f- with including older first generation uh, Filipinos, the, the number one thing to, to really express is that Filipino food is not oily, it's not salty, and it's not bad for you. It's not all bad for you. Uh, I, you know, I just had this conversation with another Filipino uh, journalist, and he was you know, he's a first, I, I think he was born in the Philippines and he migrated here in like the eighties. And he was like telling me like, Alvin, like, how do you combat, you know, people thinking that Filipino food is fatty and salty. And I think my simple explanation is that we have to start serving people who are not Filipino, uh, food that we eat every day. Cause I think what we've been known for are, are dishes that we serve only at parties, uh, lumpia, you know, uh, lechon, um, sisig, stuff like that. Mm. And that's all fried and unctuous uh, food. But we don't eat that on a daily basis. And when, in fact, we eat lots of vegetables, we eat um, stoops, uh, sorry, soups, um, that are, have like clear broth made with fish and shrimp. Uh, we eat legumes that are slow braised. You know, we eat pretty healthy. And I want people when they read this to the book to understand like 
we don't we're not just making lumpia all the time (laughs) (laughs) um and then there's like the bullet thing uh you know it was like the star of fear factor it was it was kind of offensive because it was like man like we don't eat that you know and when we do it's usually in the garage served at a party when all the men are getting drunk and daring each other and almost like hey eat balot show me how manly you are and and, and for some reason that became like the national like dish that we were known for and i was like that's completely false <laughs> And do you think that's in part, though, that Filipino Americans, and particularly the food, is kind of still concentrated in in small? When you look at the country as a whole, in smaller pockets, so a lot of people, like while the nation watched Fear Factor, a lot of those people watching might not have friends who are Filipino. Exactly, and and I think that's that's a that's a big uh, reason why uh, when I meet certain people. And especially, you know, in none of the, like the smaller town, especially in some of the smaller towns where they're like, the first thing they'll say is like, hey, hey, you're Filipino. Do you eat below? And I think it's Fear Factor's fault. <laughs> and wait, just for the audience, tell us what the, this dish you're talking about is. It's basically an unhatched duck fetus. Uh, that's still in the shell, and it's it's stewed, it's cooked in the shell, and it's served as a delicacy. And I mean, it, it, there's a chick in there. You when you crack the shell open, there's this really rich broth inside the egg, and there's a a legit fetus chick with bones and feathers. In that shell. Ooh. And let, let's now contrast that. As you were saying, there's plenty of vegetables and healthy things. Like, what's your what's your favorite dish that um, is not as uh, um, awe-inspiring and, and healthy? Uh, it's actually funny because when I was young, my dad made mung beans, you know, at least twice a week. And I hated it. But now, I love it. Um, and so I, I would say mung beans, um, you know, we have uh, like this stir-fried dish called pinak bet. And that's usually just seasonal vegetables sautéed with garlic, onions, and shrimp paste. It's so good. And how how do you have the mung beans? Because I'm fascinated that I've heard of them, but I don't know that much about them. But I've noticed that they're a big ingredient on a lot of these plant-based substitute products now. So I thought that irony was was not lost on me. But would, when your dad made it, were they raw? Were they cooked? Or what oh no, it? they were they were braised almost to mush, like they were very, like almost like refried beans, um, but they were cooked with heavy ginger. Um, some type of broth, whether it's chicken or, or pork broth, um, and it's cooked until it's soft. And we would eat it with rice and, and other sautéed vegetables. And what kind of flavor do, do, do the mushy mung beans have? 
Like, what do they taste um, like? Up front, you'll have a little bit of garlic and heavy ginger. And so do the meats themselves, actually, they don't have that much flavor, so the flavor comes from the other stuff in them? It's very bitter. It's a it's a it's a bitter legume for sure, and that maybe why it wasn't so kid friendly. Oh yeah, for sure, hundred <laughs> percent. And it's like a weird green color, <laughs> like when you cook it, it's almost like swamp green. <laughs> and do you also think that at the age you were, like, it was also a reaction to like this is what you know we eat at home but none of my friends at school eat this kind of weird green stuff was it also partly 100%. that yeah 100% i wanted to eat what my friends were eating my friends were eating like mashed potato tacos and 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 like really like awesome mexican sandwiches and and whenever i like visit a friend after school i like really enjoyed it because i got to eat like tacos and and tortas and stuff like that (laughs) well that that's like everybody's experience i think the food is always better at your neighbor's house because it's different or not what you get and like i I remember going over the neighbors and like i don't remember what we ate for breakfast maybe bagels and cereal Mm -hmm. but like we had a neighbor and she made her husband like you know homemade biscuits and bacon and eggs every morning and then i used to eat the leftover bacon and eggs that were still on the stove and that was just heaven although then he had a heart attack and that that yeah we never had pancakes we never had bacon (laughs) so when we would have like those sleepovers and the parents would make like waffles and stuff like that oh my god it was heaven (laughs) yeah no, but though you know that's childhood for you, so it makes for makes for good memories. So I noticed in the book a lot about sauces, and I, I definitely have to say I do not know a lot about Filipino food at all, mm-hmm. and so a lot of it was new and interesting information. But I noticed how much you talked about sauces, and sauces are you know v- very much a part of Filipino food. And I was yeah. kind of thinking about your classical training too. Do you think that, like sauces are like the Filipino to French connection? I, I would say that it's, it's probably the only connection. <laughs> um, no, but sauces are a big deal in Filipino food. We actually have uh, words for um, uh, like sausawan. Sausawan is basically a, a mandatory condiment um, that's always on the table uh, when you're having dinner or, or lunch, and it's like a sauce um, made with either vinegar and chilies or a soy sauce with calamansi juice and garlic, or you know, there's a liver sauce that's breadcrumbs and brown sugar, and it's 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 a wild and weird sauce, but it's delicious. And then there's sabao. And sabao is like, like the thick sauces from stews, almost like a sauce espagnol or um, you know velouté or something like that. So well, there's and- like there's definitely like a, a tie there with sauces. Uh, when well, it that- comes to like cookery, completely different. 
Yeah, no, but I thought that that, I think you described it really well, that what I was taking away from it is that that speaks to the complexity of the cooking, the fact that there are these diverse sauces and kind of, it while it's very different food and very different approach and different flavor profiles than French food, it has that, you know, sophisticated layering and complexity that French sauces do. Yeah, definitely. I was thinking about that. Uh, yesterday because I was like you know in French cooking it's all about technique and fundamentals so like if you go to any region of France and they would make a stewed chicken you know it wouldn't stray differently it's pretty standard on how like the basics were the foundation of of that stew but in the Philippines when you you go to any different, like you could go to four houses down on the same block. They would have a completely different technique on how to make the exact same dish. It's, it's wild. <laughs> so it's like, you've well, it sounds like there's less orthodoxy because they didn't have someone like Escoffier saying like, you know, this is how, this you, is do how you have to do it. <laughs> Well, and I think the other thing that I think people should remember, because I know you made that comparison also in the book with a sauce espanol, which is essentially brown sauce, is that most of those French elaborate sauces, you know, which are things that Alice Waters doesn't really do, were made because they were cover they were made to cover up inferior cuts of meat and to help with tough old chickens to make cocoa van, right? So, you know, their purpose exactly. in origin is like different than what we're fortunate to have access to now. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that is like a direct you know link. You're right. <laughs> So I wanted to, we talked about your optimism and, and your amazingly positive attitude, but given that uh, the COVID stuff is definitely not really getting that much better and sometimes getting worse, I was kind of curious what you're thinking and what your outlook is, you know, both for yourself and Amboy and also just for the sort of particularly independent restaurant world looking forward. Oh, uh, I mean... I think everything has changed. I mean, yes, I, I've, ha I've had a positive attitude. I'm very fortunate um, to have a really great following and customer base in Los Angeles. But operationally, I think everything's changed. Um, you know, I have really good friends and very successful chefs who before COVID, I mean, one would say we're printing money at their restaurants. And so signing a lease that was, you know, $30,000 a month was totally acceptable and okay. But I think after, or even now during the pandemic, we're going to have to like, really, we have to think about the longevity of our restaurants um, because it's, it's hard to justify, you know, thirty thousand dollars in rent, you know, running at a thirty or forty percent um, labor cost, a thirty forty percent food cost. It's almost like you have to completely flip business um, post COVID in order to survive. 
And in fairness, to help, you know, have job security for our employees. I mean, because that's like the number one thing for me is that, you know, my my employees that have families are able to sustain their jobs. And that's up to us who are owners and operators to really pivot and figure out ways to create revenue stream um, that could survive a pandemic. And so what I mean by that is like, you know, selling uh, raw food, uh, being able to create, you know, restaurant merchandise so that people can order it as well to boost your, your, your ticket averages. Um, and, and really depending on, um, takeout and, and food that we can sell that you can take home. So that, that's, that's a, that's a big pivot that I think is going to change the restaurant world. Um, and, and, and on the racial side of things like, Oh my gosh. Like there's this really cool, uh, charity nonprofit organization that was built during COVID, uh, called no us without you here in Los Angeles. And it really was like, it showed to everyone else in this city, like, Hey, there's a lot of undocumented, um, you know, restaurant employees that are left, you know, worrying about where they're going to get their next meal. And they all have lost their job, their jobs, and, 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 and they're a huge population. So now we're going to have to start realizing, like, you know, we utilize all of these people when there is no pandemic and everything is great. And then once the pandemic hits, they're the first people we let go and we don't have to worry about them anymore. It's almost ridiculous and sad to think about. But now we have to start planning um, to, to help everyone in 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 our workforce it's 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 a it's crazy it's like it's such a hard you know problem to solve and does your gut tell you that there's no going back to even in two years the kind of way it was do you feel like at least trans it, it 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 has the promise to have a really positive transformation in the long run particularly in terms of like what you were talking about the structures of how restaurants have been run I think it'd be silly not to prepare uh, for something like this to happen uh, or not happen. <laughs> uh, we have now we just have to be able to have a plan A, B, C, and beyond, <laughs> um, just so that we're prepared. Uh, because the sad part about it, and the reality of it is is that most restaurant owners and operators we'll probably, you know, make it out of this okay. But the people who are, like, really dramatically affected are our employees and the workforce. So, we, you know, we have to, like, have to put them as a priority uh, 
just in case something like this would happen again. And and the way things are going in 2020, like I feel like we have to be prepared for everything, like the apocalypse. <laughs> no, I think that's a great point, both having a plan A, B, and C, and D. And I think what you're speaking to is also thinking about how you vote, because it's thinking about beyond exactly. restaurants and how we build a, a fair and just society. So thank you for that. It's funny because, you know, five years ago, when we were going through the election process, I actually like broke all the kitchen rules and I put a TV in the kitchen. And while we prepped, I made sure that my staff was watching the news so that they were informed because our hours are so crazy that we're, we're locked usually in a windowless kitchen um, for upwards to 14 hours a day. And we're oblivious to what's going on outside. And then when it's time to vote, we're expected to know everything. And we didn't. And so now, you know, I feel like it's super important. Like those those super silent kitchens need to break the silence and, and conversations. And even radio shows and podcasts like this one are super vital for us to understand, you know, how we can shape the future, uh, whether, you know, in politics or in the restaurant industry. That's a great point. Thank you. So after the break, Alvin's going to share his Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show and share your ideas for future guests. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, Alvin, what's your Julia moment? Oh, my goodness. Um, I have a lot because I used to watch her on public broadcasting all the time. Um, but I think that, you know, reading her story and knowing that, you know, she's just like me when it came to she had a different job. She wasn't just you know, Julia Child, the celebrity chef, she, she had, she worked for the government and she had a regular job and, and all she could think about was food. And I am the exact same way. When I finished uh, college and worked a nine to five, all I could care about was how to make, you know, um, Boof Bourguignon from Julia Child's cookbook. And I'm, I'm sure she was the same way when she was reading, you know, her French cookbooks and stuff like that. And, and she ultimately made the decision to make food her life. And, and I, I believe I did the same thing. And I think, you know, with that and with the love and the passion of food, we've definitely made a career out of it. 
No, that's really nice. Yeah, no, I think Julia would have been the first to say that her interest and involvement in food changed her life and made it better and fulfilling. And and once she fully dived in and committed, she never looked back. Yeah, and she's a stickler for process, technique, and fundamentals. Um, and I, I'm the same way. Like, I, I had to do it, you know, the way I was taught the traditional way, whether it's making a hollandaise, like a hollandaise made with uh, a whisk versus a hollandaise made in a blender. I'm always going to choose the you know, elbow grease and, and, and I'll go and I'll whisk away until my arm falls off. <laughs> <laughs> Julia would have enjoyed doing that with you. And I, th- I think when you read Amboy, it's clear that you are not someone who's afraid of hard work, which was, was also the same with Julia. I agree. <laughs> well, Alvin, thanks so much for joining us today and, and sharing your story and your, your thoughts on this sort of current moment in time. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for having me. I hope everyone likes the book. <laughs> I'm sure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, the book is Amboy, Recipes from the Filipino-American Dream by Alvin Kailan and Alexandra Cuerdo with photographs by Wyatt Conlon. It's out now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Search for it online or ask for it at your favorite bookseller. For the latest on what Alvin's up to, check out chefalvinkailan.com, where there are links to The Burger Show and to Amboy Quality Meats and Delicious Burgers. He's at Alvin Kailan on Instagram and Twitter. It's C-A-I-L-A-N. Do follow us at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram for when you can register, which is coming up very soon, for the Gala from Home presentation of the 2020 Julia Child Award on October 15th during Smithsonian Food History Weekend. To at Julia Child JCF on I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter, the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review. really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>